This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Okay, back in October, my email and DMs were flooded with questions about the newly published team study that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine. The study concluded that an increase in early active mobilization did not result in a significantly greater number of days that patients were alive and out of the hospital compared to the usual intervention group. There are so many important factors and gems to glean from this study, so I invited experts Dr. Carol Hodson, the author of the team study, Dr. Russ Ely, and Heidi Engel to join me to really dissect and understand this study. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, let's introduce ourselves, starting with Dr. Hodson. Hi, my name is Carol Hodson. I am a professor of intensive care research at the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Research Centre in Monash University, Australia, and the lead investigator for the team trial, which was just published in the New England uh, in October this year. Excellent. Thank you so much for being willing to discuss your research with us. And Dr. Ely. Hi, my name is Dr. Wes Ely. I'm an intensivist at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, and really thankful to be here with all of you tonight. And Heidi Engel. Hi, I'm Heidi Engel. I'm a physical therapist uh, working in the intensive care unit and have for many years uh, at UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco and trying to do some research and teaching related to all of that as well. Excellent. So Dr. Hodson, tell us about the this new team study that has the early mobility community chatting and talking. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I think it's important to say that this was a, a long program of research. Um, the, the study didn't start, you know, five years ago when we actually started doing our big phase three trial. This is something that we've been working on for over a decade. Uh, and within our clinical trials group, we do a very um, thorough program of research. So our program of research has included uh, a binational observational study to define what was standard practice, uh, a pilot uh, randomized controlled trial to test the intervention and to test feasibility, a systematic review to update both the outcome measures and the endpoints that we wanted to test in the trial um, and to make sure that we were right up to date with the most current evidence. Um, and then finally grant application for our phase three trial. And I think that the background behind this is that we know that uh, ICU acquired weakness is common. Uh, it occurs in about 40% of critically ill patients. We know that ICU acquired weakness is more than just a result of bed rest. We know that it's um, a result of uh, critical illness causing cytokine production, which results in microvascular changes and metabolic derangements and uh, increased protein catabolism and changes in the actual muscle structure. Um, we believe that um, there's potential for early mobilization to mitigate ICU acquired weakness. We know that the ICU acquired weakness occurs really early. Um, and the, you know, the lovely work that was performed by um, Bill Schweikert and his team um, in their study that was published in The Lancet in 2009 led us to believe that early mobilization, if it was started very early in the stay and, and performed quite um, 
proactively may mitigate the effects of IC or acquired weakness compared with standard care. Um, so all of those things led us to conduct the team trial where we aimed to determine whether early activity and mobilisation in the intensive care unit would um, increase the number of days alive and out of hospital to day 180. Um, so we hypothesised that early active mobilisation would increase the number of days alive and out of hospital. And so this was an international multi-centre prospective parallel group randomised controlled trial. Um, we conducted it across 49 centres, um, 28 in Australia, five in New Zealand, eight in the UK, four in Ireland, three in Germany and one in Brazil. We included patients who were intubated and mechanically ventilated um, for at least you know, expected to be ventilated the day after tomorrow. And they had to have sufficient cardio, cardiac and respiratory stability so that they could um, participate in the intervention or potentially participate in the intervention. And we excluded anybody who we thought wouldn't survive to day 180 or who was dependent in their activities of daily living in the day prior or who had impairments such that they wouldn't be able to um, perform the early mobilisation. And those included cognitive impairments or proven um, primary brain or spinal cord injuries or rest in bed orders. So we followed this protocol where we um, tried to get patients to perform active mobilisation as early as possible and at the highest level possible. So, for example, if they could move their arms and legs against gravity, then we would try and um, sit them over the edge of the bed and, and move their trunk and their head against gravity. Um, and if they were able to sit over the edge of the bed, we would immediately assess to see if they were capable of standing. So we tried to progress through the levels of mobilisation quite quickly. Um, and usual, and we, we did this with interdisciplinary discussion using a safety checklist, minimising sedation so that the patients, at least for the time that we were performing the early mobilisation intervention, were had their sedation minimised and we used senior physiotherapists at the site. And that was compared to usual care, where usual care was usual care mobilisation and rehabilitation and it was delivered by staff who were not involved in the intervention when, whenever that was feasible. Um, and as you know, because you've probably read the study, you know, we had a published statistical analysis plan. We planned to randomise 750 patients, which we did. We had great recruitment across the site. So this was a study, despite the pandemic, it was delivered on time and on budget. And we had less than, we had 99.6% follow-up for our primary outcome, which, you know, was fantastic, I think, considering the number of sites that we had involved. And we had very minimal differences at baseline between our two groups. And yet we, we found no difference in the primary outcome. We were able to deliver double the number of minutes of mobilisation, although it wasn't a huge difference. It was 20 minutes versus eight, but it was more than double the number of minutes of mobilisation. Um, and the number of patients who were assessed on a daily basis was more in the intervention group. And the levels of mobilisation were achieved earlier in the intervention group. So there was separation between the group, although perhaps not as much as we had expected because the usual care received a really good standard of early mobilisation, I think, compared to other centres around the world. So there was no difference in the primary outcome. There was no difference in survival by treatment group. There was no difference in any of our secondary outcomes, including our functional outcomes to day 180. So that was cognitive function, psychological function, disability, anxiety and depression, or screening for post-traumatic stress. 
but we did have more than double the number of adverse events that occurred in our intervention group compared to our control group. So there's been some concern with the signal for harm. Not only did we have an increased number of adverse events, but we had more patients in that group who had more than one adverse event. So they had multiple adverse events. And in terms of serious adverse events, we had seven in the early mobilization group and one in the usual care group. And they were mostly serious arrhythmias. So ventricular tachycardia mostly. One patient had a significant prolonged desaturation that needed intervention and one patient had left-sided weakness after early mobilization and we think that that patient probably had a stroke as a result of a DVT or a PE. So overall we found no difference for very early active mobilization compared to usual care where usual care was a very good standard of mobilization but as a signal for increased adverse events. Well, thank you so much for all of your incredible work on this project. These are important things to study and to evaluate. I know that Heidi and Dr. Ely have some questions about some of the methodology and, and some things that I think there are a lot of things that we can learn from this study, even beyond just the conclusion that we've received. Heidi or Dr. Ely, you want to jump in? Go ahead, Heidi. Well, I, I would jump in with saying I, I, I think this is an amazing study, and I think there's a lot for us to, to take away and learn from it. And I don't think it's necessarily a negative study. So I think a lot of folks in the physical therapy community that works in the ICU have, have taken it with alarm and have thought about it as something that's very, very negative about the, the work we do every day when we go into the ICU to mobilize patients. and. What I took away from this study as someone who's, you know, spent day after day mobilizing patients in the ICU for, you know, 15 years, I, I took away from it really that we aren't there yet. And Kaylee, I want you to speak to what there looks like, because what I saw in the study is what I think I see in ICU practice for early mobility in multiple ICUs, and that is that we have patients sedated, even on low level light sedation, and we will turn it off for the mobility session. And then we will do what we can with the patient in that state. And then at some point the patient will get back in bed and be, the sedation will ultimately be put back on again, especially at, at nighttime. I hear sedation talked about routinely as sleep. So we're we're giving them rest, we're giving them sleep. And I and I I don't see that as what sedating someone after you attempt to mobilize them is doing necessarily. But I also I know for myself mobilizing patients each day. So the control is 8 minutes of mobilization and I I think I I never take that little amount of time. I can't even imagine what eight minutes of a mobility session necessarily looks like. So I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the, I. I would consider that very robust early mobility. And and so, I know my takeaway from from this study is we have a lot of education still to do, and the the answer is not about what I feel like we've done routinely for many years, which is treat mobility in isolation from everything else. I, I think, and I hope Wes will speak to this quite a bit, but it's it's such a team sport, it's such an interprofessional activity, and it really requires the whole package looking at the entire ecosystem. And I think this study really highlights that 
very well that we have a lot of 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 learning and teaching and growing to do but in treating the whole person and not just doing mobility in isolation so my question is how do you perceive the study what do you get from it wes Thanks so much, Heidi and Carol. I appreciate you and Kaylee. Thank you for having us on today to have this conversation. I think that, first of all, to frame our lives as academicians and as clinicians, we have to remember that every time we ask a good question and get data back, it's a time to learn. And when we get data from a study that was as comprehensive and thoughtfully designed, Carol, as the Hodgson trial, the this is a this is a time for us to sit back and reflect on what did we learn and how do we move forward and i think that more and more in my life as a graying intensivist i i think that heidi hit the nail on the head that this is really all about an error in our thinking with regard to how to best care for the human being who is critically ill in the icu and the error all began back in the 90s when we thought let's spare them memory Let's spare them awareness and let's do what we think is paternalistically the most humane thing to do for them, which is to deeply sedate them and keep them in an immobilized state. I know that this intervention was designed to have people mobilized early, and yet the data in the main paper and the appendix show that despite these best efforts, 70% of the patients were at RAS minus two or greater for the first 72 hours after enrollment. And RAS minus two, what is that? That means that you cannot make sustained eye contact. That means that something about the way your brain is working won't continue to pay attention. Remember that delirium is best predicted by the ability to pay attention. And so when somebody is unable to make sustained eye contact, they are manifesting phenotypically inattention. And that is somebody who has a difficult time following the commands of mobilization. So when Polly Bailey, one of the pioneers in early mobility, was asked by Roy Brower to come to Johns Hopkins so that the people at Johns Hopkins could understand how can they get people better at, at this world-renowned medical center, Roy went to the first patient and said, Polly, what do we do next? And Polly said, well, in this patient, I would lighten sedation. And in the second patient, Roy said, what would you do now? And she said, well, I'd lighten sedation. And it, the, the story kept going in that, in that way. If you, I'm going to give you a few more data points. If you look back at the Schweikert paper and then three other major randomized trials, which were published in 2016, Schweikert was 2009, and then Moss and Morris and Schaller were all in 2016, the, the real contrasting data that, that, that was telling in those four clinical trials was that if you got actually mobilized in the first one and a half to two days, which happened in Schaller and Schweikert, we saw definite improvements in ADLs, in independence, in reduction, two to three day reductions in delirium, and also ventilator improvement and management, ICU and hospitalization duration. The, as compared and contrast to Mar Moss and, and Morris, where the, the true actualization of mobilization was three to eight days later. So it was basically two studies early, two studies late, early mobilization actually reduced bad outcomes and improved lots of things that were barometers of primary and secondary outcomes. We had some recent data, by the way, from Lauren Ferrante, which, were, which showed that in terms of ventilator-associated pneumonia, 40% reductions in ventilator-associated pneumonia 
with early mobilization. And the largest meta-analysis of all was by Peter Neidl, and it was 22 studies, many, many thousands of patients, and saw reductions in, in delirium and hospital length of stay as well with early mobilization. So in summary, my take would be when we get a culture that allows people to be RAS zero to minus one within 24 to 48 hours, which, which, which wasn't achieved in this investigation, apparently by the data shown, we can get people up and mobilized and it will make a difference. When we over-sedate them and we're all guilty, and when I point a finger, I'm pointing three back at me. So I am complicit here, absolutely complicit, that when we don't treat patients with, with actual light sedation, saying that we're doing light sedation on paper is not actually doing light sedation. When we do it right, patients get better and the improvements are there. Those are my thoughts. So a couple of points to respond to both of you, and, and I really appreciate your comments and take them on board. And as you know, I'm a huge advocate for early mobilization and my background is also physiotherapy and it's what I've spent the you know past 30 years of my career trying to advocate for. For starters, when we speak about eight minutes of active exercise in the control group compared to 22 in the intervention group, Heidi, I just wanted to clarify that that doesn't include any of passive movements or sitting in a chair or sitting up in bed. It doesn't include any of the preparation time or the planning or the pack-up time. So that is purely eight minutes of actual active exercise that the patient is participating in as opposed to you know what you might do and and even if they were moved to sitting out of bed into a chair once they were sitting out of bed that that time wasn't counted for in that because we were no longer actually doing exercises with them they were just sitting so just to clarify I think that people look at that eight minutes and they think that's a really low number in fact if you add the physio's time by the time they assess the patient and assess strength and set up the bed area and do the intervention and pack up the bed area and maybe leave them sitting out of bed, it, it is much closer to an hour that you would need to perform those eight minutes of very serious active exercise. But I do acknowledge that that sounds like a small number. But for those of us who actually do it, I think you, you would understand if it doesn't include the setup and pack up, it's a bit different. And Wes, I really like your comments about the RAS. I'm worried though that you've been looking at the lowest RAS table rather than the highest RAS table. So we asked that our patients, and, and Heidi sort of alluded to this, that you know we were asking that we were allowed to desedate the patients to allow mobilization to occur. So in fact, we had 66% of patients who achieved a RAS of minus two to plus one within the first, within the first 48 hours and nearly 80%, 79% within the first three days achieved a RAS of minus two to plus one. And we had a huge number of patients, over 80% of patients who mobilized within the first three days. So we did achieve mobilization and we did achieve a light sedation for the mobilization to occur. But that doesn't mean that that light sedation, it means that during the day, the patients had a range of sedation scores where the lightest one allowed mobilization and the high, and the lowest one meant that they were, were probably back being sedated, as you say, Heidi, potentially overnight, potentially at other times during the day. And of course, we would all prefer the aim to be that we have our patients quite awake. But there were some good reasons, I think, why our patients weren't. And, and we actually listed the barriers to, to mobilization as, as you saw where sedation was the largest barrier in the opinion of the physiotherapist who were trying to mobilize the patients. But there were other reasons, good reasons why patients couldn't be mobilized, including, you know, neurological problems and, and instability and other reasons why they weren't able to be mobilized. It's a good point about the lowest versus the highest RAS. What I'm thinking of though, Carol, is when 70% 
are at a minus two or deeper on any given day. I'm just thinking as a clinician caring for these people that, you know, that's that's minus two is the highest in that in that situation. I mean, meaning that minus two or deeper means it could have been minus three, minus four, minus five in that deepest table. Now, I know that later on in the day, by the by the highest RAS, they're lightened up. The drug is lightened to a degree that they are perhaps higher in some circumstances. But yet that stuff, that grogginess goes on and that overall perception of where is this patient in their recovery status is so jaded in me as I'm looking at them thinking, well, God, they were just in a coma. Now they're not. There's something about, I'd love to ask Heidi this. There's something about seeing somebody awake and staying awake that sends me the message, this person is ready for mobilization, as opposed to coma, 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 awake for 15 minutes. Oh, we're at, we're now ready. No, I'm still thinking we're not far enough out from sedation yet to do this safely. And I'm going to be hesitant. I'm going to be reticent. And I'm going to be, you know, thinking this person cannot quite go through a full, let's walk you down the hall on a ventilator. Heidi, can you comment about your real world experience in this regard regarding how, how long they are unsedated? Yeah, I, I feel like, so the message of the Society of Critical Care Medicine IC Liberation Campaign had been light sedation and lightning sedation. And particularly post-COVID, we, we did get used to tolerating a lot of sedation in patients routinely over long periods of time. And I do find that, that many practitioners want to turn the sedation off because that is what the A to F protocol says, but then they walk away from the bedside. And often as a measure of safety, often as a measure of, well, I can't be watching this person all the time, often as a sense that sedation is a form of rest. Once the patient has gotten up, moved a little bit, the standard practice is to 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 turn the sedation back on so and it's it really is looked at as a compassionate comforting rest it's as if we're giving someone you know a nice nap is the way that the the providers i think view the sedation and i think what it does actually is create in the big picture and the long term greater problems than it actually solves. I think I think Intermountain Health has created a a standard of treating patients and sedation, sedating them procedurally in a way that allows the patient to be coherent enough to get up and walk down the hall on a regular basis. So in in my dream world, yes, I think one of the things this study tells us, the team trial is, you know, because we will do this on-off sedation, very easy turn the sedation back on or very easy delivery of sedation, there's a low bar for what does it take to get us to sedate a patient. They don't have to be decompensating in order for us to sedate them. Again, because what I see is providers think we're doing something compassionate, you know, like I can't get a good night's sleep and you're giving me a little something to help me sleep and rest more. So because we have a very low threshold for turning sedation on, I think we don't understand how we are creating patients whose highest levels of mobility, like we see in the team trial, are 
maybe getting to a chair after a week in the ICU. We don't have patients walking down the hall because they're not awake long enough throughout the day and they're not awake period enough to go through the coordination of standing up, getting the equipment together and safely getting down the hall. My patients who have this on-off sedation strategy, and it's a lot of them, usually can't walk. And they can't walk because the residual impact of the sedation doesn't allow them, like you said, the engagement, the awareness, the coordination, they, they, they can't do it. I can get them to a chair. I can get them on the edge of the bed. I can sit and do exercises with them. Um, but they also exhaust very quickly. And I, and I, I think we haven't drill down enough into looking at the risk-benefit analysis of our sedation strategies. And I think the team trial really tells us it's time to go back and address cumulative doses of sedation, right? Mm -hmm. We're turning drips on and off. Like the, it's accumulating in, in, in folks' tissues. And, and I think the, the study demonstrates a lot of, well, of course we want to mobilize folks, but we, we're trying to we're trying to have our cake and eat it too, in a way, right? We want to sedate them and we want to mobilize them. And it's not working is to me what the team trial tells me. And just to correct you, Heidi, we were able to stand patients by day three. So in the intervention group, patients stood by day three. On, That's the uh, on majority average. of them though. That's not what I, it yeah, didn't seem like. On average, were... on average, they stood at day three. And I had read that only 6.9% more patients in the trial group were walking versus the control group. Is that true? Right. That's by the end of the ICU stay though. So it happened earlier in the intervention group, but by what we were saying is by ICU discharge, what was the highest level of mobilization? And they had achieved a very similar level of mobilization by the time they were ready to be discharged from the ICU. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. A lot of this resonates with my experiences in an awakened walking ICU. Dr. Ely brought up Polly Bailey. She is my mentor. I started working with her at the very beginning of my career as a nurse, later nurse practitioner. And in that ICU, it's standard practice to allow almost every patient to wake up right after intubation. Sedation is not automatically hung. They are RAS of zero. Sometimes they tolerate a one. It's customized per patient. But when this trial shows that there were so many adverse events, it makes me wonder how much of that had to do with delirium. Did an episode a little bit ago on unplanned extubations. A lot of agitation happens from delirium, but those are the exception in this awakened walking ICU because delirium is so low. The, the rates of delirium are so low. So when I saw that the barriers were sedation and agitation, they seemed to be almost the same thing. They were either had hypoactive delirium from sedation or hyperactive delirium from sedation. And those are very difficult. And when I work with teams to help them improve the mobility practices, the teams that I see with the most success are those that um, adapt the Polly Bailey method of allowing patients to wake up right after intubation. And they ask after each intubation, does this patient have an indication for sedation? And if not, then they're not sedated. And it's incredible to see how many more mobility sessions happen, how the level of mobility progresses so much quicker with these patients when they're not sedated. And so I saw, I found a lot of validation in the team study with that. 
And the breakdown of the groups of adverse events that were related to mobilisation were more about oxygen desaturation and cardiac arrhythmia. That was by far the most common. Some altered blood pressure as well, although that happened in both groups more than the early, early mobilisation group. And there was four patients in the early mobilisation group only and one in the usual care group who had issues around pain and agitation. So I think it really was more related to the intervention itself rather than delirium per se. But, you know, there you go, just mostly oxygen desaturation and cardiac arrhythmias. And overall, what was the percentage of adverse events during all of the mobility sessions? Yeah, it was it was low. So I let me just have a look. Sorry, I'm not sure if I've got the exact percent in front of me, but it, I mean, it's it's a relatively low number per patient. You know, it still is a low number, but I guess when you have more than double the odds in the intervention group compared to the control group, that's I think what is important for people to know is that you know, not only did we not gain anything, in fact, you know, the primary outcome, as I say, was days alive and out of hospital. The point estimate favoured usual care, remembering where usual care is still being able to stand patients by day five and, you know, sit them by day four. So it's not, you know, it's still a high level of mobilisation, but the point estimate did favour for days alive and out of hospital, it favoured usual care and there were less adverse events with that. So, you know, we're we're going back to the drawing board a little bit with our group just in terms of thinking there, there's two things that need to, I think, that are really important from the results of the team trial that, that we're drilling down into the data for. The first is the heterogeneity of treatment effect, because we do believe that there are groups of patients who did worse than other groups of patients. So there's probably some baseline factors that are really important. And I can tell you, I, we think that we've identified one and I won't talk about it now. It's a post hoc analysis and it'll just be hypothesis generating, but we think that we have identified one group of patients who did particularly poorly and that that might have affected the results overall. So if we can look at the heterogeneity of treatment effect, looking at baseline factors, including admission diagnoses and, and some other sort of covariates, then I think that it's important that we can look at differences there. And the second thing that we think is important, I mean, we'll do a descriptive paper about it, you know, so that there's a little bit more detail around the adverse events, but it'll just be descriptive. But we're really interested in dose response here because, I mean, I honestly do think that what we did didn't benefit the patients in terms of really pushing their mobilization when we did. So what does that mean that we have to do differently around our dose? And and it's unclear from the data at the moment whether that means that we still get them out of bed early, but we don't spend as many minutes of time, whether we spend the minutes of time, but we don't push the level of mobilization as quickly, whether we use a more usual care, but you know, how do we actually define the dose of mobilization? And there's several, several factors to dose. As I've said, it's the the intensity of the exercise, it's the highest level of mobilization, and it's the duration. And we don't know, you know, for example, the, the AVERT trial, the very early rehabilitation in stroke patients trial that was led by Julie Bernhardt and published in The Lancet five years ago, showed that there was harm with very early mobilization in patients with stroke. It doesn't mean you stop rehabilitating patients with stroke. The question is, how do you rehabilitate them? And, and Julie went on to do a CART analysis where she looked at the dose response and they found that the harm was associated with the duration, a longer duration of, in terms of minutes of rehab caused harm in stroke patients as opposed to the highest level of mobilisation. In fact, the highest level of mobilisation was associated with a good outcome, but they had to keep the treatment session short. So, you know, we're wondering if with the team trial, there's a signal between the dose and how we need to think about that. 
So two things I think moving forward that are going to be really interesting coming out of our data will be secondary analyses looking at heterogeneity treatment effect from baseline factors and dose response. I love that you're doing that and trying to pick apart duration versus highest level. I think that's a really smart thing to do, Carol, and just thank you for your due diligence on, on picking apart these data to generate the hypotheses to move forward. It tells me that you're not satisfied with the with the that you're not at the end yet. You say, hey, this is an intermediate point in our learning where, where the train is going to take away, is going to leave the station again sometime in the future to go a answer, ask and answer other questions, right? I think that's uh, exactly I right. Couple, I have a couple of questions for you. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. One is that a few days after the trial was done, after the paper was published, one of your partners started tweeting out, rest is best. And, and I wanted to know if you think that rest is best, if you actually think that. And no. the second question <laughs> yeah. I have for you is, is, is do you think that the patients got more sedation than you, than you would like for them to have gotten? In other words, do you think they were over sedated from a, as Heidi put it, cumulative sedative perspective. Okay, so I'll take the rest is best first because that's an easy one. So Dr. Paul Young is a fabulous intensivist and a friend and a colleague, and he's actually one of my mentors, and he's probably one of the smartest trialists I know. But I think that even he agrees that he didn't mean rest is best. What he probably meant was less is best. Um, what, he and what, was, what he told everybody in the world was rest is best. I know, I know. And don't worry, I called him out on it in on Twitter as well. You might have noticed my response to him as, you know, I did not agree with that at all. Of course, we have to start rehabilitating rehabilitation with our patients at some point. The question is, you know, what's the best timing? What's the best dose? And are there patients that are going to, you know, perhaps have a better response and some patients that might have harm associated with it? And that's, you know, these, as you say, with, with when you do a big trial, you know, you try and answer one question and all it leaves you with is probably, you know, 50 more questions, which are, you know, burning questions. So, you know, I don't agree that rest is best at all. You can see that our usual care was definitely not rest. I mean, in our usual care group, as I said, they were standing by day five. They were not resting. And and a very all of them mobilised in ICU, like over 90% of those patients mobilised in ICU. So there was no rest in any of our groups. That's the first thing I'll say. And the second part to your question, Wes, was, sorry, just repeat the second part to your question. Uh, I'll, re I'll, re I'll rephrase it again. If you look at your lowest 
level of RAS and your highest level of RAS tables. And believe me, I don't normally pick apart data like this, but I was so perplexed by what was going on that I actually went through every single day and made a graph just so that I could learn from this. I won't, I won't show it right now, but on your lowest, the intervention and the control group, 70, 70, 70 at minus two or, or less. And then all the way out through eight days, Carol, and this is, don't take this as criticism. I'm just, I actually want to know what you're thinking. The, the intervention and the control group were just, even Steven out to eight days, there was no difference in RAS levels out to eight days for lowest RAS or for highest RAS. It was, they were almost identical. And whatever I look for when I do clinical trials, I've been doing them for 25 years, you know, is separation of groups. So take people, put them in, randomize them, and then separate them. And since I think that sedation is so key to the entire thing of can you mobilize a patient, what it told me was there wasn't separation of groups in terms of sedation, which at the bottom, at the end of the day, I think that what happened was, but be, 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 you know, be ready to come on back at me with criticism on this. I think what happened was that sedation was the rate limiting step in your trial because the patient's sedative levels were so similar the entire way through that there was no way to allow the mobilization to kind of take off in the intervention group. And so I think the sedation level was holding back the ability to do actual higher dose. And that's to me going to be the main limiter. Yeah. Okay. So that's a great question. For starters, we didn't collect data on, you know, types of sedatives on the duration of sedatives or on the dose of sedatives. So I, I can't answer questions around that. All I can say is that, you know, that we've gone back through our data really carefully and that nearly 80%, 79% of our patients had a RAS in the range of minus two to plus one by day three. And, you know, nearly 70% had it by day two. Does that mean that it was sustained and for long enough? Again, I can't tell you from my data because we don't have it, but I agree with you that there was not great separation in sedation between the two groups. And we weren't aiming to do that. All we were aiming to do is to allow the early mobilization group to be sedated long enough to be mobilized. And we did achieve separation for mobilization. So we weren't aiming to do a sedation trial. And I agree with you. Should we have is another question. That's that, And it's a great question. The bottom line is that's not what we did. We did a trial yeah. where we, we asked for sedation to be minimized in the intervention group to allow mobilization to occur mobilization definitely occurred it occurred early it occurred at a high level um we you know we we achieved it a couple of days earlier in the in the intervention group we achieved it for a longer duration and to a higher level so whether people think that's enough separation between early mobilization and usual care and and interestingly our usual care group which people say is a really high level of mobilization is identical to the usual care group in the Schweikert trial. So, you know, the Schweikert trial actually also had patients standing by day four and, sorry, standing by day five. So, you know, when we were doing our response to the reviewers with the New England to and fro, we had to actually change a lot of our discussion because it was pointed out to us that actually our usual care was the same as Schweikert's. Mm. Interesting. Heidi, any thoughts about that? You know, I just... I just wanted to offer an anecdote. So I think more than a, a, a teacher and researcher, I'm a daily clinician, right? And so a lot of my observations are what I see at the bedside day in and day out. And we have, we have a specific group at UCSF, which is our lung transplant patients, okay? 
And so we'll receive these patients from outside hospitals, very, very sick and stage lung disease, often needing, you know, multiple things done in order to wake them up. Typically they come from an outside hospital having been sedated or having some superimposed infection on top of their end stage lung disease. So they're fairly sick, but they really have one major organ system for the most part that's taken out. So I will give you that, that they're not in multi-organ failure for the most part, usually. They come in and our lung transplant team is very specific about they must be awake. So they quickly, within one day, do all their procedures. They There's no sedation on these patients their entire stay while they're waiting for lungs. And what we watch is... Day one, they they can't process their RAS zero. So day one, in my hospital, waiting for lungs, having a workup for lungs, and they are hard to mobilize because they've been lying in bed, they've been sedated. Now the sedation was turned off hours and hours before I'm seeing them and they are technically a RAS zero. However, I can't do much with them. They've now spent a week or something in bed at an outside hospital receiving sedation. And this is all kinds of baselines, young, old, et cetera. So day one, I can't do much. There's tons of anxiety for the patients. Like what's going on? The family's looking at me saying, what's going on? You know, they shouldn't they be lying in bed? That's what we were told at the outside hospital. It's going to be dangerous to move them. They're going to deset all these things. That takes a couple days of no sedation for two days for me to help work it through with everyone. But by day three, those patients know the routine. They're gonna get up out of bed. They're gonna walk down the hall. They're gonna sit in the chair for a while. They're gonna get a little bit tired. They're gonna get back in bed. Someone else is gonna come along later in the day and repeat the process. And then once they're in the routine and once we've had days to dial back the sedation, to help them make sense, to empower them to participate in their care, they can do much higher levels of mobility, much safer. But my other patients who are in the medicine ICU service very often will come in and they're being sedated for their critical illness, but then we're afraid to take the sedation back or with everything that happens going along the way, which sometimes is about them, but frankly, sometimes is about staffing or individual person's belief about sedation. And so the sedation for that population very often I find is going on and off and on and off. And if you average their RAS, it could be minus one. If you looked at their median RAS for an overall period of time, you could say, well, but they were RAS minus one, but they weren't because they were all over the place, depending on who is at the bedside and what are the particulars of that day. And so I'm I'm in that, like what I just described at the first two days of my lung transplant patients, I'm constantly in that cycle. I can get them to stand. I can maybe get them to get to a chair. They're going to get exhausted. They're sort of understanding. They're sort of not. They want to try because at this moment, they're RAS zero but I'm going to come back tomorrow and they were on the sedation last night and we're kind of starting over and over again. And I don't progress very far in their mobility. And I know from Polly Bailey's one published study, and I think it was in 2008 in critical care medicine or 2007. So it's not a new study that protocol that they employed of having the person just be awake. Like, let's just 
turn the sedation off and leave it off. And it was really that system of having the patient on zero sedation for days and days and days and a protocol and a normalization of by the staff of like, yeah, our patients are like floor patients. They should be awake. They should be getting up out of bed in the morning and heading down the hall. And these are patients, right? The median, the median Apache 2 score for them is 26. And they had PF ratios of 100, right, in that study. So these are really sick ARDS patients who were capable of getting up and walking down the hall simply because people turned the sedation off and never turned it back on at all. Right. I, so I don't. I don't disagree at all, Heidi. But that was in medical patients in a single centre, and and I do think that when you look at a big multi centre study with a mixed cohort, surgical trauma, medical, it, it, it's going to give you a different signal. There is going to be noise in the sedation signal. And now I'm not saying we got it right. I'm not saying it's perfect. We didn't actually even try and address sedation other than to say that we needed patients to be desedated to allow mobilization in the intervention group. So I, I, I am completely not disagreeing with you. I agree with you. That's a great study. She showed us how, you know, I, I completely agree. Polly Bailey showed us how it can be done and should be done, taking into account that that's in the, it's a strictly medical unit where, you know, there weren't perhaps some other considerations that we had around some of our patients. And I'm just waiting with bated breath for their COVID retrospective study, comparing their treatments and outcomes to the other COVID ICUs within that same community hospital system. I think there's a lot to be learned from that. That to me is a big gap in the research is comparing even the control group in your study. What if we compared that to the Polly Bailey method? Would we then see a difference? I mean, anecdotally, I have teams reporting a 75% reduction in length of stay. I mean, they're small, it's anecdotal thus far. I wouldn't publish that quite yet, but I am seeing a reduction in length of stay by changing sedation practices, which then enables mobility even more. But Dr. Ely, I have a question for you. I'm still always learning about the history of the ABCDF bundle. I have always wondered about some of the semantics behind this protocol. So we say vacation, we say trial, sedation vacation, sedation trial. I, I wonder, and I see sometimes that even just those words is part of the problem. I, and I don't mean that critically, but just when I talk about, when I teach teams about sedition practices, they feel like they're practicing the ABCDF bundle, but they're commonly doing what Heidi's describing, turning it down just to see patients thrash, considering it a fail, and then resuming it and calling that a failed trial. And they did a vacation. Instead of this perspective or this expectation to turn off sedation or to get to a RAS of zero. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, uh, Gita Mehta did an investigation in Toronto and Canada of the, the ABCs, the awakening trials and the breathing trials. And in their culture, the nurse, and I was at their hospital. I went to talk to those nurses. I spoke to them myself at the bedside to understand what had happened there. And they said, oh, well, we, we did the trial. We turned the drug off. But then as soon as Gita, as soon as Dr. Mehta walked away from the bedside, we turn it back on. And I said, why'd you do that? And they said, because we believe that the right thing to do for patients is to keep them with some sedation on board. And what they showed was that there was a dramatic increase overall in the amount of sedation delivered to the group who got the daily awakening trials. You heard me right. Those who got the daily awakening trials got more benzos than those who didn't. 
because the nurses felt like they were having to play catch up to get that drug back into the person because in their mind, the right way to care for the patient was to protect them with a drug. This is, this is a mindset of, of chemical restraints being the best way to care for a human being. And, and, and we know, for example, from over 35 randomized controlled trials with benzodiazepines that they lose every time. There's never been a comparator against a benzo where the benzo won. Because anything that does this to the brain worsens patients' outcomes. And that's why at the end of the day, you we can't, whether it's the team trial or any of these other early village trials, we cannot achieve optimum management of a human being in a, in a, on an individual basis or on a population basis unless we change the spirit of how we go about looking at people. And I say that we have to look at our patients and say, not what's the matter with them, but what matters to them. We have to switch the preposition from with to to and say to, on each person's bed, what matters to you? And if what matters to them is to be awake so they can talk to their loved ones, awake so they can hear what's supposed to be going on in their lives, and they can hear the progress, hear the directions from the physical physio, then, then we are not putting them first when we keep them deeply sedated. This is not an indictment of team. This is an indictment of all of our management because we, in other words, when, when you said, Carol, we did what the study was set out to do, you absolutely did, no question. And what I'm saying is that until you achieve separation of groups at, at the level of sedation, we will not see an optimized early mobility plan, period. That's my one thing I would leave you with, all of us with, is that all of us will fail the patients unless we actually achieve some difference in the way we're sedating them. When I share with teams that the real vision and mission of the APCDF bundle is to create patients that are more awake, autonomous, I quote Brenda Pun on this, to have mobile, that that is the purpose. It's not just to do an awakening trial and then turn sedation back on. That is not the ADA bundle. The ADA bundle is to have patients awake and mobile, unless there's a specific indication. And then those tools within the ADA bundle help us guide how to minimize duration and dose of sedation, right? But when I share that, people are shocked that they they did not know that it's not the culture, that's not the perspective given with the A to F bundle. So I feel like we're really missing the true vision of having an awake and walking ICU, that patients that are sedated even to a negative two should be the exception and not the standard. And until we do that, we really can't optimize mobility and maximize outcomes. I guess just on a final note, I'll say, and I agree with everything you've said, I I am a huge advocate for sedation minimization in a prolonged state. Like Heidi, I am also a clinician. I work at the bedside regularly. You know, I don't like if our patients are left sedated and just woken up for short periods of time. That's not the way that we like to manage patients either, although I am afraid that, you know, it is more common than I would like. But I guess what I would say about coming back to the team trial, just to finalise, is that even if we had achieved perfect separation in sedation, would that have achieved more mobilization than what we have? Quite possibly. Would that have had a benefit? I don't think so, because what we've seen is with the small separation that we have between the groups in mobilization, we, we the, the point estimate in the primary outcome still favors the control group, which is still a good level of mobilization, but it's not very, very early mobilization. And it's not this sort of intense mobilization that we we achieved. And we still had more adverse events that were mobilization related. So if we'd had more mobilization, I'm worried we would have seen more adverse events and, and that it may not have benefited, you know. So 
I mean, I guess I'm hypothesizing, but I guess what I am saying is that perhaps in a future trial, we should plan better to implement the ABCDE bundled together to make sure that sedation is a priority with mobilization. I, I, I take that point on board and I completely agree. But what you're, I guess what I heard or what I'm wondering if you're implying is that if we had done that and we had more mobilization, that that would equal success. And in this case, I'm actually not sure that it would. And I don't think that we can say from the results of the team trial that that's what would happen. So lots of food for thought. And please stay tuned for the post hoc analyses that we have planned, because I think they're going to be super informative and really helpful to drive this program of research forward and also to help inform clinicians about some groups of patients that may benefit and, and some groups of patients that may actually, you know, be harmed by early mobilization. I want to be very generous in my interpretation of what you just said, because I think that 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 you, from the data at hand, you actually are making a very well thought out statement. And I, I think it's brilliant. And you're obviously a great investigator. I just, one thing that has not been said during our entire hour together yet is this, that let's not underestimate the systemic effects of these drugs, because it is not just about the ability to let the patient wake up and have their arms and legs work. These drugs are toxic to multiple organs in the body. So, Carol, if the drugs overall had been given less and there was a true separation of groups, there would be actually a body-wide, I'm hypothesizing here, I would, I would propose that there would be a body-wide allowance of greater healing to go on from head all the way to toe, and it wouldn't be measurable just by the dose of the, of the, of the mobility. So what you have at hand is two groups of people both getting very, very similar levels of these sedative drugs, not separated out by your own data, by their own you know, highest and lowest RASs. And so what I'm saying is that when that happened, upstream of your attempt to mobilize them, their entire body was involved in this situation. And it, it leveled the playing field. Is, that's what I'm hypothesizing. The level, The playing field was leveled by the drugs upstream from the beautiful attempts of your trial to separate. Yeah. Well, and I think I think I think the mobility is is getting a wrap for the adverse events when we don't know that, right? Because it it's, it's in my mind just based on what I see at the bedside each day, it's mobility plus the sedating drugs that don't really entirely, you know, the impact on the brain and everything else. The mobility plus the sedation is when I see more AFibs and when I see more irregular blood pressure responses. So I think but, it's, but, in it's a, a, but in a randomized trial, but in a randomized trial, if we've got no difference between the groups in sedation and we do have difference in the groups between mobilization and the adverse events were associated by the investigators with mobilization, then I don't think that that's accurate, Heidi. I actually think you have to say that it was either as a result of the mobilization or the only other you know, question here is whether there was reporting bias because people had eyes on the intervention group more closely than on the control group. So it is possible that there is some reporting bias. Otherwise, I think in a randomized controlled trial where the only difference was the level of mobilization, it, it's hard to refute that. that it's two great, two great points. I, I think all I'm, yes, but I think all I'm saying is, is that 
probably the sedation plus mobilization gives you more adverse events, whereas perhaps, and again, it's a hypothesis, perhaps if the intervention group got the 20 minutes of mobilization and no sedation, there would have been less adverse events. That's what we don't know, right? And so to just give a blanket statement that, well, look, this extra mobility is harmful, Yes, in a this group that is receiving these levels of sedation, but our question that still remains is, would it be harmful if the patients were awake and the sedation had been off for all these days? I think that's a great question for our next trial. <laughs> yeah, so yes, I know I see exactly. I see all these different trials stemming from this discussion. Yeah, and I hope exactly. that's the fruition. And from a trialist perspective, the hard thing is let's let's look at three different types of trials, and I'll, I'll be very brief. One single center where you can totally control everything about what's going on. One, a, an intermediate size, let's say five to 10 centers, okay? Where like in the Mind USA study, where we can really, really hone down and when I say babysit a study. But the one disadvantage, Carol, that you're at when you have such a huge network is the inability to keep eyes and ears on all these studies, on all these sites. And when I say babysitting a study, it's basically impossible when you have 80 centers or whatever many you've got to babysit it. And so what happens is you are subject to the culture of all those ICUs, and it's not possible to change those cultures within the context of a protocol. So what do you think about that? Is that, would you agree with that? Was that a frustration? Oh, no, yes, yes and no. It's, I guess we believe in, you know, large pragmatic trials, like, you know, we try and implement it across as many centers as possible to try and get an answer about sort of implementation widely and broadly and globally. That's what our group sort of are well known for and that, that's what we do. And of course, the single center trials and the smaller trials have to be used early to inform a larger trial, which is what we did. So we did, you know, we did our observational study. We did our single center study. We did our six center randomized control trial just across Australia and New Zealand to inform our larger trial. So I guess that was all of our preparatory work before we performed our big phase three trial. But the phase treat and 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 our pilot trials you know had an indication that there might be benefit which is why you know we were funded to do a bigger trial so I guess the question is then when you do implement it worldwide and you do say okay well let's throw out early mobilization and push it as early as possible you're not babysitting sites you're giving them a protocol you're asking them to follow a protocol you're asking them to randomize patients and you know you're right you don't have the control but what you find out is whether when you implement that at a global scale whether that will cause benefit or harm and, you know, this answers one little bit of our question, but as I said to you, we've got, and, and, and I am pro mobilization. Our usual care group got a really good level of mobilization. I'm certainly not throwing out the baby with the bathwater here. And I do not agree with rest is best at all. There was no rest in this trial, but you know, we, we have a lot more questions to answer and, you know, we're really excited to move forward with this program. I just want to ask one last question to the group. And that is, so Polly Bailey's study that I cited has been out there since 2007. And Kaylee's podcast is very much based on what we've read in, the, in that study, but I have never seen it replicated, right? I've never seen that protocol replicated or as Carol suggested, put into a larger style. You know, here is your one center, you know, descriptive study of what is possible but no one's ever really tested it, right? And I think that's a very intriguing question for the future, Wes and Carol and Kaylee, because, you know, 
that's a very different protocol than we've seen. And I've read everything, right? We've read all the early mobility trials and I've never seen a protocol that one stands way out different than the rest, just as all the things you talk about on your podcast, Kaylee, really stand out very different from what is standard practice. So even in a pro-mobility, pro-A-to-F bundle ICU, we still, none of us are doing what you are trying to, to ask the world to do. And so when are we going to have the study that, that uses that as the protocol that's handed out to so many centers? Well, I'll, I'll give you this response. Although her, let's, let's say that hers was the absolute no sedation, which it was, and the, the results were, let's call that 100% compliance with the bundle, the AWF bundle. In our 15,000 people that were in the ICE Liberation cohort study, a year-long quality, two-year-long quality improvement, remember that we saw a dose response. Went from zero to 20 to 40 to 60 to 80 percent. The further you went towards poly, if poly's 100, the better you got in terms of decreased length of stay in the hospital ICU, less death, less ICU bounce backs, less delirium coma. Everything dose response went in the direction towards poly's perfection. As you went away from poly in the ADF bundle of 15,000 people, you got more and more badness. So I would say, although it wasn't a randomized controlled trial, in 15,000 people, we saw Polly's situ situation replicated in a dose response. And we also saw that replicated in 6,000 people in Marianne Barnes-Daly's study two years earlier, which was with Sutter Health at nine, nine ICUs in the, in the Sutter Health California system, dose response once again. So I think that Polly has been vindicated, if you will. She's been validated and vindicated that, yes, when you put this out there in the real world, and most of the ADF bundle is about what, what Kaylee said earlier, which is a systematic waking people up throughout the day. It's not a one-hour shutoff and then turn everything back on. It's a culture shift of awake ICUs. When that spirit of, is adopted, we see these results. Would you, do you support the continued culture of automatically sedating every patient after intubation? Are you asking me? Uh-huh. No, I, 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 I sedate my patients for the intubation. And then during that day, they get sedation. And then the next morning, when I say when the sun comes up, their sedation is coming off. And even in COVID, when we were using ridiculous high respiratory FIO2s and PEEPs, the nurses would say, you're kidding. I say, nope, let's turn it off because she's got to see her husband. She's got to see her husband, this woman who delivered four babies. She just given her birth to, birth to her fourth baby. I said, she's going to forget why to live if she doesn't see her, her husband, James. And so when she saw her husband, he's like, honey, you got to get home. I've got to have you there. And she remembers, oh, this is my why to live. And I would love to see that somehow studied to show the impact of the will to live on survival and how sedation practices and delirium impact the will to live. There's so much that we can dissect and glean from this, but thank you so much, Dr. Hudson, for your incredible dedication to these important questions. Keep us posted on what comes up later and what we continue to learn. And thank you so much for having me, Kylie. I really enjoyed it. I loved our discussion with Carol Hudson. I deeply respect her devotion to early mobility. Her passion for studying and promoting early mobility resonates with me. I know that she did not wish for her work to be misinterpreted, and yet I have been concerned by the response to the study in the ICU community. 
iPad leaders of the ICU teams say to me, quote, well, now there's a team study that shows that early mobility doesn't help patient outcomes, unquote. Hopefully, after listening to this discussion, you are prepared to clarify this study with your colleagues. I also want to emphasize the importance of sedation management in these studies and at the bedside when it comes to early mobility. I visited a team for a gap analysis a few weeks ago. In their defense, they did not do webinars with me prior, so they had very little preparation for my approach. They understood that we were there to help them practice early mobility. When I broached the topic of improving their sedation practices, they seemed bewildered. They didn't understand why we were there talking about sedation when we were there for early mobility. To me, this team study reveals that gap in our approach. We cannot truly master early mobility and give patients the full benefit of early mobility if we first cause acute brain failure and more muscular atrophy for days prior to attempting mobilization. Please check out the blog for this episode. Dive into the citations, look at the graphs provided, check out the graph from another early mobility study. This is a good example of how sedation should be tracked in such a study. We have to look at the whole picture. I invited Dr. Mark Moss to share some insights. He is the professor of medicine and the head of division of pulmonary science and critical care medicine at the University, University Colorado School of Medicine. He has vast experience with research and has been a principal investigator for over 19 years. Mark, thanks so much for talking about this study with us. Just in conclusion of what you and I have, and Heidi Engel, what we've been chatting about, what are some of your insights or takeaways from this team study? Um, well, Kelly, first, thanks for inviting me to participate. I think this is a, a very important issue that requires further discussion. Um, I, I think the take-home points for me about the team trial, as I said in the editorial, is that the trial was designed to test different doses of early mobilization. And it should not lead to the conclusion that early mobilization is ineffective in general. Um, and I think that was a concern of the editors of the New England Journal of Medicine and why they um, wanted an editorial to try to put the study in the proper perspective for the clinicians who are caring for these patients. And what are some questions left unanswered in your mind after reading this study? Sure. I think the team study was a well-done study, but I think it also shows that we're in our infancy still, um, a decade later after um, we start to think about the role of early mobilization for our intensive care unit patients. And I think we need to potentially take a step back and think about how to identify patients um, who will receive the most benefit from early mobilization, how we can risk stratify patients in a more effective way. Because I think it's not correct to have physical therapists performing early mobilization on everyone in the intensive care unit. I think we have to tailor the therapy to the individuals that require or will receive the most benefit from the intervention. And in addition, I think we have to design studies that have the appropriate um, comparison groups. I think that was a, an issue with this study. There wasn't great separation between the two groups. So it makes it harder to identify a difference when there's not a big difference between what the two arms of the study were getting. I think we need to 
identify outcome variables that are attainable um, and inform clinical practice. And then really at the basics, we need to determine what are the appropriate types of therapy? When should we start it? How do we start it at an earlier time? What's the right intensity? Um, how do we coordinate it uh, with the nurses and the respiratory therapists? And then the duration of therapy. We're critical care doctors, but their, their weakness doesn't end when they leave the ICU. It's really just the tip of the iceberg, and we need to learn how to coordinate potentially longer durations of therapy that extend to the regular wards in the hospital and, and maybe even to the outpatient setting. And any thoughts about the role of sedation um, that may have played into the overall outcomes of the study? Yeah, I, as, as they showed in one of their supplemental figures, one of the biggest barriers or the biggest barrier um, in the early days when patients were enrolled into this study um, the biggest barrier was sedation and delirium. So if we're going to stick with the theory that starting these interventions earlier, like most interventions, are going to be more beneficial, then we have to figure out what to do with sedation strategies with delirium in these patients so that we can uh, potentially deliver the optimal duration intensity of therapy at an earlier um, point in time. Absolutely. And I want to include also for the listeners, um, the median time of enrollment for these um, participants was was 60 hours, right? So um, I would assume that those that are on sedation starting on day one of the study were also spending about two and a half days sedated prior. Would that probably be a safe assumption? Yeah, I, I, would, I would think so. Again, that's where doing studies and what we do in clinical practice are not always aligned. To do a study like this, it, you have to have a research staff that screens patients, identifies them, finds families. And I think in critical care research, we're getting better at identifying people early. I can tell you in the neuromuscular blockade study that we did that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, our time from them meeting the inclusion criteria for the study to being randomized was, I think it was nine hours, if I remember correctly, um, so shorter than 60. So there are ways to enroll people earlier, but sometimes it just takes a while to identify families and get studies up and going for an individual patient that then inhibits the ability to understand how to um, transform um, that into real clinical practice. Absolutely. And speaking of real clinical practice, what would you invite the ICU community to do in their clinical practice as a response to this study? That's a really hard question um, because I think part of this study examined a slightly more intensive strategy versus standard of care. And the standard of care in, in the hospitals that were used in the study is that 81% of the ICU days in the usual care group, patients were assessed by a physiotherapist. And you know, it's, I think that's a really hard question. I'm not sure this study is definitive enough to inform people to change what they're doing currently, though I can't say what they're doing currently is correct either. Um, so I'm not sure this study can tell people to 
to change their practice in a, in, in a significant way. That's a great answer. Thank you so much. Anything else you would share? No, I think, I think that's, that's great. There's just, um, it's the typical thing people say, but there's just a, a lot more work to be done in this area um, to really understand how to get the right therapy to the right patients. Absolutely. And which is overwhelming, frustrating, but also exciting. So thanks for helping us dissect this and we look forward to the future. Sure. Thanks, Kaylee. Thanks, Kaylee. To schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts, please check out the website www.daytoniceuconsulting.com.